This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode. It's an episode of the weeds, of the dudes, the Swedes. Welcome to an episode of the Swedes. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff, but also by special guest star Libby Nelson, uh, who is here to help uh, illuminate some of the, uh, the the recent doings uh, with, with Trump's education secretary nominee um, and, and possibly also uh, Tom Price, uh, HHS secretary. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Packed um, podcast studio here. I know yes. it's busy. Can Very we be thinking calling this the Swedes? The Swedes. Yeah, I was making those a joke earlier, but now I like this as a name. For I the don't weeds. think any of us are Swedish. Libby's Swedish. I'm mostly. I'm mostly Swedish. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So it'll, it'll just, just be her podcast. Special, right. The Swedes. It's just just Libby. Maybe <laughs> right? weeds with a Swede. That's this episode. All right. Okay. Excellent. I'm good. So with let's. That. We're not actually going to call talk that about. Theme. Okay. Here's the question. <laughs> Since every time I try to talk about. Betsy D E V O S. I then get emails saying I've mispronounced her name. Who here remembers how we say her name? I know how to say her name because I too got those emails the last time we talked about her. And one of them sent me the very helpful mnemonic device that it rhymes with boss and not with gross. And I have never forgotten it. All right. So it is Betsy DeVos. DeVos. Not DeVos. Not That'd DeVos. Be gross. Yes. That is a good mnemonic. She's the boss. Yeah. DeVos is the but boss. she's not gross. She's the education boss. She's she she's not gross. Do not pronounce mispronounce her name. It's gross. That's but she, is she good at hearings? She's not good at hearings. <laughs> she went up to, to Capitol Hill at 5 p.m., a little bit oddly, to talk to the uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And they had curtailed the questioning mm-hmm. to just one round. Um, they gave the senators less time than they normally do. So it all kind of seemed like maybe Republicans were uncomfortable with her as a public performer. And then she was a terrible public performer. I do not think anyone who watched that, including some some conservative education observers, came away with the feeling that this was like a a confidence-inspiring performance. There were sort of two lines of attack going into it. One was the questions around her personal wealth, her family's political donations, the fact that she hasn't completed her ethics agreement with the Office of Government Ethics yet, which I can understand why those were the questions they wanted to ask, because politically a lot of that stuff looks bad. It turns out she was mostly fine and was prepared for those questions and handled them pretty well. Then she was asked some really basic <laughs> education policy questions. And Can I just note this is bad? This is yeah, this is also bad. <laughs> I w- by sort the of way. would have preferred her to flub the "why are you here?" questions to the "how does education work?" questions. Just wanted to note. Yeah, I would. I would also like to put in a stake and on like I am pro asking those questions, even if you think the person can handle them. Um, yes, but in this case, they were really revealing and like there were there was a moment when I was just I almost couldn't watch because I was cringing so hard. It what was, was that moment? It was this moment when uh Senator Al Franken asks her what should be a like pretty softball question, which is when you're looking at student assessments, so standardized tests, what are your thoughts on on measuring proficiency and measuring growth? Which like I thought is kind of an in the weeds education policy question, but one she should be able to answer. It turns out that even if you don't know anything about this policy, you can sort of listen to that question and get like you to understand basically what it's supposed to mean. Yeah, like are 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 you measuring if kids can do something? Or are you measuring how much progress they're making? Like what are what are you looking at test scores for? It is not it is not a hard question to puzzle your way to, and. 
Her response to it was just it, – it honestly sounded like she had never heard those terms opposed in that way before, which is just an immediate tell that she has not been paying really any attention to education policy because this was a big deal when Congress rewrote No Child Left Behind, which I have been here to talk about at least once before. Um, it's something that if One of the greatest you, episodes of the Swedes. <laughs> truly. It's something like if you pay attention – if you pay attention to education policy, like that, that should have been an easy question. And – Instead, it was like two minutes of back and forth on terms, and by the time they agreed on terms, he he had moved on to the next question. So it was, like defining, it was, it was devastating, what? defining proficiency, Pers- defining okay. growth. She um, she she also flubbed the one about the disability statute. Um, yeah, that so, was the other. That was the other one. Could, could one of you explain that? Because that I think is not getting as much attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is really it, it's very telling in a different way. And and maybe just one point I'd make as a framing point on, on some of what Libby said is. There are definitely places in education where Betsy DeVos, rhymes with boss, has been very active, right? She can probably tell you a lot about vouchers. She can, and she, yeah. What she doesn't know about is the parts that she hasn't had a deep-seated ideological interest in, which is what people who have been working in the field do come into contact with. She doesn't have a broad understanding of the topic. She has a kind of very narrow set of commitments on the topic, Right. And I, what my takeaway was. Well, yeah, and I would take that one step further to say that the things that she doesn't know about, it is not certain that she is going to get to implement a giant voucher program, although Trump would like her to do that. It is certain that she will have to deal with growth and proficiencies. She will have to mm-hmm. deal with uh, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Like The things that she doesn't know about, unfortunately, are the things that no matter what party you are, no matter what your policy is, you as education secretary have to do. And and you know we, we should we should talk about this because I, idea the individuals yes, yeah. disabilities and education act it's a little bit marginal to education as experienced by the typical person or typical parent because they're not disabled um, but it's very central to what the federal department of education does because the federal department of education does not run high schools it doesn't really run like colleges and universities. Uh, but it does have this this statute, right, which is like the main legislative vehicle for handling disability issues in an educational context. So every school in America needs to deal with idea compliance. It's a big deal in state education budgeting. And it is run by the federal government, right? If you, if you want to know like what what has to happen, Right. In an administration, if the president doesn't really care about education policy, if Congress doesn't feel like administering laws, if you want to just say, look, things are going to happen in cities and states across America, flowers will bloom or we're just lazy or whatever it is. People are going to be suing about this because they feel their kids are not being treated fairly or schools are going to be worried that they're spending so much money on taking care of this one thing that they don't have the resources left to to deal with with, with another, right? And it's not that, I guess, ideolog- it's not like as basic an error as, as the growth versus uh, proficiency thing, but it's like really central to what happens in the education department if you were just to like take the subject seriously. Yeah. And just to back up a little bit and say what what actually happened is essentially she was asked a couple of times questions that touched on the rights of students with disabilities or on IDEA, um, the, the federal law guaranteeing their civil rights in education. And her answers sort of suggested that she didn't know it was a federal law. She said at one point that like states should be able to decide whether or not they comply with it. Any senator in that 
committee should have been able to tell her that was wrong because Republican senators love to talk about ideas and unfunded mandate, meaning it's something that you have to do um, and you cannot decide as a state to opt out of. So I actually I'm going to disagree with Matt a little bit. I think it's it's something that like as a parent, if you don't have a child who who is covered by idea, which is actually many, you know, millions of people do, um, it, it might not seem like something you think very much about. But, you know, I saw people saying on Twitter, like, this is first year ed school. This is this is still not something that is like really, you know, there there are policies that you could have asked her about that would have been gotcha questions because she has no reason to know about them. I don't think this falls into that category. So this feels like kind of bad for Republicans, like going down this path. I know like Matt wrote about this a little bit today, but this feels like not great to be putting forward these unqualified nominees. Like, I think, to me, like, I watched a little bit more of the price hearing than the DeVos. And, like, Price, like, understands healthcare. Like, you might not. There are a lot of things he said, like, I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But, like, I understand what he thinks about healthcare. And, like, I understand. And it's clear he understands those ideas. It seems like a little worrisome to be moving down this path with someone who seems to not be able to answer some basic questions. Right. And I, I like I want to underscore that. That's what sort of shocked me so much. I was expecting her to come in and, and say things about vouchers that may not be supported by the bulk of the research that, that Senate Democrats would not be happy with. These were not issues of her giving a wrong answer. These were issues where there would have been like very obvious politically vague ways to answer some of these questions she was asked that still communicate that you know what you're talking about. And she just clearly had no idea what she was talking about. And, and you know, so, something I think it's worth saying about this is there was a, a column, uh, not about this week, but last week that Byron York wrote for Washington Examiner, where he was like, Trump got a lot of bad press this week, but like Trump won the week. Um, and what York meant by Trump won the week was Republicans eliminated the filibuster, so Senate Republicans just sort of continued to steamroll everything through. Despite Wait, Democrats eliminated the uh, Democrats mm-hmm. eliminated yeah. the filibuster so on, co- on confirmation, yeah. confirmation. So, right on confirmation. So right, what it amounted to was that Republicans are now free to not worry about Democrats' objections to things and just kind of move ahead. So they are definitely they put points on the board last week. Uh, uh, DeVos's. Uh, confirmation is not in any way jeopardized by her giving embarrassing answers to limited questions. Um, But I think if you think about like what is a cabinet for, right, it's not really in the Republican Party's interest to have an education secretary who Lamar Alexander's way of doing her a favor is to try to make sure she doesn't have much opportunity to speak. Right. Like one of the big things you want in your administration, right, is like you want to staff up with people who I mean, people ideally who will like do a good job and make America fantastic. But like at a minimum, by people who you can send to a big conference of people who care about the issue and they will speak in an intelligent way by people who you can put on television and who will answer a reporter's question and make people who don't care that much about the issue think she seems smart and competent and is taking care of things. And it would be embarrassing to have somebody put forward sort of die on Capitol Hill and then have somebody else put up to replace them. But in the longer run, you're just you're better off having like a team of 
solid players than trying to sweep under the rug, like really sort of like glaring, obvious problems with people. Uh, so with Price right now, right, I saw uh, Senator Warren giving him a, a hard time about his uh, his stock trades. And, you know, it seems to me that this would have killed a nomination eight years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You want to say a word on what these stock trades are? Uh, so basically he bought there was a HHS made a regulation that was bad for companies that manufacture uh, hip replacements. And so Price uh, bought some stock in one of the companies that was most adversely affected by this legislation. And then five days later, he uh, introduced a bill uh, that would, you know, check the regulation. Um, so then the stock had a pop. And Price is offering some defense of this that involves some like getting really, really angry when people say that Price bought the stock because what Price actually did was he called his stockbroker and then his stockbroker on his instructions bought the stock. So fair enough. Um, I, I don't think that's how words work. Yeah, the Trump transition team sent out a whole thing to health reporters about how, no, 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 it was Morgan Stanley that bought the but stock. It, but at any rate, but you know, they can confirm Tom Price if they want. But like, do they want... A health and human services secretary who will be constantly dogged by questions about this skin. I mean, maybe. Maybe Tom Price is not just like a conservative who's knowledgeable about health policy, but is like so uniquely knowledgeable that like they must have him. But I watched a little of the hearing where Democrats are doing like obvious, like, do you agree with Donald Trump's campaign promises on health policy? And he was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough situation, but he, he didn't seem like he was like some kind of wizard where it's <laughs> yeah. like we, we need to let this guy's like penny anti-corruption drag us down. Right. And that was like if you think about like why did Democrats cut Tom Daschle loose? Right, like who arguably, due to his relationships in the Senate, was as close as you get to an essential nominee. Right, right? they wanted to pass a bill through the Senate. You maybe it, get it, the former Senate leader. It seemed yeah. important, but they were like, "Look, we, we they they like Tom Daschle, but like they weren't going to carry water for Tom Daschle just because like they have bigger fish to fry." And so, like, why is like. DeVos, like, she doesn't know what federal education policy is. Ben Carson is also up there, which is, again, it's just like a gimme job. Like, you want a HUD secretary who's going to, like, run around the country and do stuff. And, like, Ben Carson is a joke. Yeah, I would say also on price, it wasn't just that one stock trade. He had this apparently a habit while he was uh, serving on irrelevant committees Um was like trading hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of healthcare stock over years. There's at least like two or three specific instances, including the one Matt mentioned that have already come up. But that also means like this could be a slow rolling disaster as more of these emerge for a really long time. Like it, it I don't think we necessarily – nothing illegal has come out, but I don't think we also can necessarily say for sure that like there isn't something else shady looking that just hasn't come up yet. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things 
things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. It is not, I think, likely the Democrats are going to take the House back in 2018. But in a general sense, you don't want such a target-rich environment for investigation. It just It's not a good way to start. It's also not a good thing to do with the press, which is going to investigate and, and all this stuff can, as Matt says, really dog you. But I just want to zoom out for a second to a bit of a global picture here because I think this is going very badly. Um, for the Trump administration and not because, again, they're going to fail to get their nominees confirmed. But Rex Tillerson, who I think will be confirmed as secretary of state, says he's never talked to Donald Trump about Russia. That seems like something you would have talked about. But what it appears to mean above all is that whatever contradictions are between Rex Tillerson and Donald Trump on Russia, they have not been figured out. Kelly, the DHS, the Homeland Security nominee, has not talked to Trump about immigration. Ben Carson doesn't know anything about what a, what the Department of Housing and Urban Development does. DeVos doesn't know that much about education. Tom Price has a health care plan that in addition to violating all promises Donald Trump has ever made about health care is also, if you explained it to people, an extremely unpopular plan. And I think folks have coming out of the election a feeling that Donald Trump has managed to suspend the rules of how politics works, and so nothing can be predicted or thought through in a, in a normal, linear way. And I think that's really – and I think Donald Trump believes that too. In some ways, we're, we're going to talk about that in the next segment. But I think that's really wrong. Donald Trump is extremely unpopular. He's by far the least popular um, – was the least popular nominee, now is the least popular president-elect we've ever – we've seen in the time in which we've had polling. He lost the popular vote in the election. And if he has an administration that is a festival of incompetent policymaking and scandal, not only will a lot of people be hurt, not only will his administration do very badly, but a lot of punishment is going to be meted out on Republicans, congressional Republicans who are the next ones up on the ballot. Donald Trump is not up on the ballot in 2018. But when you've got the presidency, you're already starting from a disadvantage in a midterm election. And if the presidency is going to go badly, that's really bad. So it could all – I could be wrong about all this, right? Betsy DeVos could prove to be a genius at the Department of Education uh, in ways people don't expect. She could pick it all up super quickly. But they are putting themselves in a very dangerous position because they are actually not demanding that much of themselves or their – president-elect or, or the country's president-elect in a way that the one thing that is very hard to fool people about is reality. And the great advantage Donald Trump had when he ran in 2016, I really think this is underappreciated about him, is he had no record. 
he had weird statements. He had things he said. But the reason Donald Trump could be taken neither seriously nor literally is that he had no record. Hillary Clinton had this very long record that people were able to some degree or another to hold her to. But Trump as president will have a record. He's not going to be able to go around and say whatever. Unemployment will be higher or it will be lower. Schools will be thought to be doing better or they will thought to be doing worse. We will be in a better place with respect to the rest of the world or in a more isolated, unpopular place. Uh, there will have either been a total disaster as he attempts to deport millions of families or there won't have been. And you don't just get to talk that over. Like it actually has to happen. And I'm not sure the Trump administration is prepared for that. And I'm not sure um, even Republicans are really thinking about it. I guess – so one of the things I wonder about in this whole space is how much – how much the cabinet heads matter and like how how much having someone like Betsy DeVos in charge of ed actually shapes the department, like how much having someone like Price in charge of HHS actually shapes the um, department. You know, when I think of healthcare is the one I know best, like you, you do have this prominent person at the top, but you also have like all this career, longtime service surrounding them who, who are really kind of at like the guts of the agency level. When I think of the big health care debate we're going to have, it feels very much, I think despite what Trump has said, it's still going to be quite a Congress-driven process. Um, there have been doubts raised by those on Trump's transition team, whether Trump actually has the plan that he says he has. Some people on his own transition team think it's um, the quote from Yuval Levin's recent piece was a figment of his imagination. I guess I... The thing I wonder about is like how much space there is to screw up when you're a cabinet head. So like a, much. I think uh, I think it depends. I think education actually you have to screw up a good bit. Uh, I sort of agree with you a little bit on this, Sarah. Well, I, talk gonna, gonna... well I want to hear Libby's yeah. case on education, and then you can tell us why you disagree. Yeah, I mean, education has. If you are going to be a mediocre to brilliantly incompetent cabinet secretary. Education is probably a pretty good place to be. And education right now is an excellent place to be for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is people do not pay much attention to education policy on the national level, which is a singular fact of my existence. Um, they do not. <laughs> I mean, get into some psychology <laughs> stuff with Livy. Could they, like, I'm not sure people right now could name who the secretary of education through the end of this year is. John I'm, King. John King, John yeah. King, yeah. Okay, well, this John people King. can. Awkward, <laughs> Ezra. <laughs> you know, people, yeah. people have, like, when people think about education, they think about their school and they think about the schools surrounding them. And if there's a very strong perception that the federal government is doing something like Common Core, which the federal government was not doing, but that perception existed or No Child Left Behind, that sort of like links that in. One of the advantages that, that Betsy DeVos will have, should, should she be confirmed, and I assume she will, is that her hands are going to be largely tied. Um, the states are pretty much in charge of what happens at this at in terms of using standardized tests, holding schools accountable. There is no big no child left behind law that she's going to be the face of. The main problem with education is that like there are things the department does and someone somewhere has to care. So Arnie Duncan, for example, A, like I've been giving Betsy DeVos a hard time, so I should say Arnie Duncan never met a talking point he did not love. He was almost impossible to shake off of his talking points. Um, so it could make it difficult to understand how much he knew, independent of them, about any one policy area. On the, he knew a tremendous amount about K-12. He'd, had, he'd headed Chicago public schools. He would have been the one to tell you he knew very little about higher education. 
But that was either run out of the assistant secretary's office or for most of Obama's first term and at least part of the second out of the domestic policy council. So there was someone somewhere in the administration who cared. I think where things could get dicey is if you don't have that backstop. And given what we've seen of the Trump administration and transition so far, the fact that they weren't able to brief her adequately for that hearing does not give me hope. So let me make um, a point to the side of this because I actually agree with all that. But the reason I think there's a particularly high level of screw up ability right now, and I don't I'm not talking here specifically about education, which for the reasons Libby describes is one of the more a little bit more insulated departments. It's just kind of weak. The Trump administration is entering a civil bureaucracy that hates it. And this is something we should probably have a, a longer discussion about. And, and I've been kind of thinking about how to do a good article on this or like, is somebody else going to do a good article on this? But I have heard about and have come into contact with a certain number of folks who work at different points in the federal bureaucracy in different agencies, and they're not leaving. They would not have been like some of them are right leaning, some of them are left leaning, but they are not. But they're like never Trump types, which is what a lot of people who like the government and committed their lives to working in the government, or at least for some portion of their lives, a couple years ago was what you would expect from that kind of person. Trump offends a lot of them. And they are not they are not starting, maybe I should say, from a helpful posture. <laughs> uh, I think that I think that's a fair thing to say. And there's a lot you can do within the bureaucracy that makes the life of what you're trying to get done harder. So when you're thinking, I think, about the ways this can go bad, there's both upside risk and downside risk. So one thing is that the Trump administration in theory would like to get things done. So one one thing with someone like DeVos is it it's actually really hard to get things done out of the Ed Department yes. because they're not that powerful. You need to build a lot of consensus. You need to get a huge bureaucracy, which is also on its own just complicated and in some ways dysfunctional. Torquebanu, HHS is massive. It's so big. It's the largest government agency. Right. And the people who are there like healthcare programs. Like that's like, like you don't work at HHS if you don't. So now in comes like Tom Price with Donald Trump. And a lot of these people's work is particularly by Price. I mean, Price has been a guy who's been there for a long time trying to cut through this agency. And I just think there's a lot of risk of not disaster here. I think this is more a kind of risk of paralysis, of just being slowed down and embroiled in the muck of just like having a lot of trouble getting things done. Uh, I think a lot about management these days because I manage a lot and I can't imagine how hard it would be to run Vox <laughs> if the people who did all the writing didn't want to write any of the articles that I thought we should run. I hate to tell you, Ezra. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is going to be – I think but this is going to be hard. I think one of the things that pushes back against this – like. I think you're totally right that there's a lot of people staying at agencies, but they really like their agencies. Like they want their agencies to function well. And I think that's like a backstop. I, I, and I guess I don't necessarily know like paralysis ends up being bad for a Trump administration. Like if it takes them, I, I don't know how to game this out fully, but I don't necessarily think it will end up being bad for them if it takes a while to end health insurance for 20 million people. Like if that gets pushed off, that's actually – what Republicans want to do but are having a lot of trouble doing legislatively. And if somehow they end up like doing that through bureaucracy, that could be a weird win. But it just feels like there's a lot of people at agencies who who care about their agencies. Like I totally agree with you. But I almost it almost to me like feels protective of these cabinet heads. Like there's a lot of people who want to steer the course 
of this agency in some sort of productive way that they care about. I, I just think like on a more basic level, like you only get to say that a certain number of people are members of your cabinet. Once you like bestow that little like cabinet scepter on them, I, some of them even have special flags when the agencies are old. Um, and and when job sounds amazing when they have that, they can do things like they can go to a national conference of state superintendents of education, and they can represent you there, and they can give a nice presentation, and people can say, "I don't agree with these people about everything, but I respect them." Right, or, or as, you can as Arnie Dickon did, you can say one stupid thing that will dog you for the next six months. Right, or you can send someone who's like really unimpressive and who people feel insulted that this person who doesn't know what they're talking about and seems lazy and seems like she's been habituated by a life as a billionaire heiress to just being never taking tough questions from anyone, and and people will be angry, you know. And so I would I would draw a distinction between. Some of the people in, in the cabinet and the people like like DeVos, like Ben Carson, who just really seem like like you're not picking the best people, like a competently drawn up list of like who will go be the face of conservative education policy should be somebody who is knowledgeable about education policy. There are lots of people who Betsy DeVos supports financially who work on education policy in ways that are reflective of her ideas and her priorities. And they like work hard at this like all day, every day. They have little points on all of these different issues. Like that's the point of being a donor. And if you've ever, I've worked for a lot of uh, years in uh, nonprofits and the donors to those nonprofits are often not as knowledgeable as they think that they are. And it's not in anybody's interest to tell them that fact, right? They're, in fact, very gently shielded from the fact that their ideas don't make sense or they don't know what they're talking about. You know, it's like everything is great when you're a billionaire and a generous billionaire. And, like, everybody agrees that she's a very generous billionaire. (laughs) And I think it's, like, it's a real problem. Like, politics is a lot of, like, people yelling at you and stuff like that. And, like, you got to, like, take it well and then come back and have a smile. Um, And I I thought in a counterpoint, uh, uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, whose commerce hearings I saw right now, who seemed like someone who would be bad at this to me. Like, he's like a billionaire private equity guy. He was born in the 30s. Like, I don't know. Um, But he was up there and he was, like, talking about broadband internet and how he's never been to Cuba personally but understands this is a difficult issue that even divides families. Like, it was really good. He seemed like someone who had been doing politics before, uh, but he hasn't. But, like, most of the people who can do that just kind of, like, bullshit their way through a committee hearing. Like, this isn't their first hearing. Um, and and you saw that with, with some of the people Trump's thrown up there, right? Trump does not Trump beat professional politicians in like the highest stakes game of politics. And so he has like very little respect for people who do this professionally. And I understand like where that comes from. But I still think like most of the time people who've been doing this for a while are going to be better at it than like just people who happen to be rich. I have one quick point to make on Ezra's point about the bureaucracy and civil servants, which are a couple of examples that I think it would be good for people to keep an eye on to see how this is going to shake out. Um, One is obviously the Office of Government Ethics, which has 
all out gone to war on Trump mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. But beyond Walter Schaub, the, the director who may be the most courageous man in the federal government right now, every cabinet department has its own ethics officers uh, and what they do around these issues of conflicts of interest, which are more applicable to Trump at the moment, uh, but I suspect are going to keep coming up given the way the transition has acted, is going to be interesting. Um, The other is the Office of Civil Rights at the Education Department, which I mention only because they just hired a new person in that office who's coming from Harvard who had worked under Obama, who, as far as I know, has very much been formed by the activist approach they've taken on sexual assault over the past few years. If that person whose name has slipped my mind stays in her job and is able to sort of direct policy, and if Betsy DeVos knows little enough about Title IX enforcement um, to care, that's a really, really substantial difference. And I'm really curious to see what happens there. One other just basic thing here, uh, I think, is leaks. One thing that can really fuck up an agency is if it becomes extremely leaky. Agencies become leaky when there's a lot of division over the right way forward. Once agencies do become leaky, in addition to creating a lot of embarrassment for the uh, broader administration. The other thing is people stop trusting each other. And it's very hard for them to communicate internally and, and, and set policy and have discussions. And so I actually kind of agree with Sarah that not being able to muster the bureaucratic energy to do anything might stop you from doing things that are really bad and will backfire. But I will say that's a very low bar. <laughs> to, <laughs> I think we've really defined success down if that's where we are. <laughs> Speaking of getting things done and what will happen to the public's well, opinion you, of you. You mentioned earlier that Donald Trump's approval ratings are very bad. I did. And that this is potentially a problem for him. Yes. But Donald Trump's view of this is that the polls are rigged just like the election polls were rigged and that I, I heard, I mean, I wrote an article. It was a, it had like a really trenchant thesis and it was that polls show that Donald Trump is very unpopular. Um, and I got a ton of, of counterpoints, both from like loyal Trump supporters and from Trump skeptics that are like, after what happened at the election, how can you believe these polls? It's all just made up. Um, they only sampling like 1% of people. Um, so, I mean, how how can you rely on these rigged polls? <laughs> so I have a, a few a few thoughts here. So one, just real quickly on the on the polls. The national opinion polls were just not that far off in the election. Um, I think if, if I remember correctly, they're about two percent um, above the end result, which is a pretty normal margin of error, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Hillary Clinton did win by what is it? A half percentage point, something in that neighborhood. Uh, so that. Polls of Wisconsin were really off. And if you tell me um, you're looking at a poll of Wisconsin, I'm going to be skeptical about what it says. But in terms of national uh, opinion polls, those do not seem to be off. Second thing, though. So this is one of these Trump tweets that I think we've become habituated uh, increasingly to not taking seriously. Most Donald Trump tweets are are things you can you probably shouldn't uh, give as much attention to as you do. This one feels to me much, much, much more important. So what he said, um, and polls have shown him with anywhere from sort of 44% down to 34% approval ratings, which is just terrible. In some ways, I think the situation Trump is closest to is out of George W. Bush, who also won in a strange election where he lost the popular vote. And and in some ways, the way that got resolved was much more complex and much more contested than the way Trump's election went down. And George W. Bush, after all that, began office with approval ratings, I think, around 58 percent, if I'm remembering this correctly. So being in the low 40s, high 30s, that's a disaster. Uh, It is just a disaster. 
Now, the reason it's important that Trump is saying he doesn't believe these polls is that Trump is quite unrestrained by the institutions of American politics. He is governing at a time of very strong party polarization. So the Republican Party is really closing ranks around him as opposed to holding him to account. That's what our previous conversation was really about. And the Republican Party also controls the Senate and they control the House and they control most governorships and most state legislatures. And after they make their Supreme Court nomination, the Supreme Court. So the Democrats do not have institutional checks on Donald Trump. So you put that together and you ask, well, what is going to keep Trump from just spinning out into really, really bad ideas? And the normal answer you'd give is public opinion, that presidents, politicians of all kinds watch their polling. And when the things they are doing make them less popular, they change course. If Donald Trump doesn't believe those numbers, if he believes that polls showing him to be unpopular are intrinsically wrong because he is just popular and he knows that independent of the data coming in and unpopular stuff is just the media rigging it against him, he is freeing himself in a very dangerous way from any kind of check of public opinion. He's already somebody who didn't win the popular vote. We're already in a world where most voters did not endorse Trump's agenda. And if Trump isn't even going to believe the polls that would give him some information about where others in the country are, for him and for the Republican Party and for the country, that is genuinely dangerous. A president so unrestrained by institutions and so unrestrained by public opinion is really a president with no restraints at all. Do you take the tweet, I guess, as evidence that he actually doesn't care about public opinion and isn't guided by it? Because one of the things I feel like I see a lot, particularly covering him on health care, is he likes to stay stuff that, like, makes him popular and, like, he knows people will like. Like, he loves to talk about how he's going to provide health care for everyone, even though that is so far from his plan, right? Like, it still seems to me realistic that public opinion could be a check in the way that even with these tweets, he seems like someone who's acutely aware of what People think of it and maybe like it is the case that's delusional enough that like he really believes these numbers are rigged. But there seems like to a lot of the ways he acts, like such an awareness and a concern for being liked. It struck me looking at the internals of, of some of these polls that, you know, what's really dragging Trump down is the same kind of uh, personality based attacks that Hillary Clinton leveled a lot on. His numbers on like personal favorability are like horrible, way way worse than like job approval. Um, he's regarded as having a bad temperament. People say his Twitter usage is really bad, like all that kind of stuff. His numbers are like okay on like, is Trump going to be good for the economy and is Trump going to keep us safe from terrorism, which, you know, I think in some ways it's like a little uncomfortable for, for liberals. Liber- <laughs> Liberals are comfortable with the idea of losing to, like, popular magnetic personalities who have unpopular views on the issues. But I think that, like, I do agree with Sarah that Trump seems to me to have a like a like a nose for for where the public is thinking about things. And in particular, um, precisely because he's like unconstrained by norms and, and elite convictions and things like that, it's like, you know. You could see it like with the Muslim ban thing, I felt, that it was like – that's what I think Republicans thought too, was that like 
why don't we just not let any of these people in? And like he said it and like people, people loved it, you know? Um, and it, I think if people had hated that idea, you know, he would have backed away from it as he eventually did under, under a different kind of pressure. But I, I think at least in the sense of like, watching how things play out and like seeing how people respond to different ideas that like he's he's if anything like hyper attuned to these kinds of like shifts in in public sentiment so i I think matt's point played exactly into the point i was going to make anyway which is like what do we mean by people when we're talking about what people want are we talking about the people at his rallies the people who voted for him the people who he wants like behind him to cheer everything he does or are we talking about the like broad swath of the american public that you get in a in a public opinion poll because my sense is it's something in between so i'm going to hold fast to the mm-hmm. other side of this debate i think donald trump has gut intuitions about what people will like i think he has shown zero ability to seriously change course or pivot or strategically <laughs> make decisions that um, would end up helping him. It is true that what he has done has in a very profound way worked. And I think you have to think about what that must have done to his view of it, right? Mm-hmm. Having been told this was going to be a disaster and he was a joke and the Huffington Post would only cover him in the entertainment section, then he wins the Republican nomination, then he wins the presidency despite all the polls being off. I mean, imagine what that does to your own estimation of your personal judgment. It, it, it's, it would be... Very difficult to keep things in perspective. It would, by the same token, be, I think, trivial for Donald Trump to have a 62 percent approval rating right now. It wouldn't have been even difficult. Stop tweeting in the way he was. Give some conciliatory speeches, which for a second or two on certain winning nights he was able to do. Just like listen to Reince Priebus. Just chill out. And like just walk the straight and narrow for a little bit, make some of these appointments that people want to see you making. Like Republicans are happy with Tom Price. They're happy, I think, for the most part um, with folks like uh, General Mattis. There's a lot of stuff you can do that are just going to like you. There's such a low bar for Trump to clear right now that just like going out and calming down a little bit and being gracious would have gotten him a ton of public approval. And it really would have worked. Like, I really think that would have raised his poll numbers. And he absolutely couldn't do that because it is the same part of him that allows him to, like, really say the thing he thinks. Like, why don't we just not let any of these Muslims in here that also has him follow his gut intuition on whenever somebody says something mean about you on Twitter, even if they're just an egg, why don't you call them the worst name you possibly can call them? If John Lewis has made you mad, why don't you spend Saturday morning on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend attacking John Lewis and making that the story going into your inaugural? And I don't think that is a a trait set that is going to serve him well. I agree that he could get his numbers up by being more conciliatory and more, I don't know what you call it, presidential. You know, you like normal hold some meetings. Nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, just like saying like, you know, I understand that some people are alarmed and I want to reassure you. And yep. he could he could walk the streets of New York and like greet some people and shake hands and and it would go up. But I I think that that doesn't actually do justice to the situation that he is in where the biggest asset that he has is these Republican majorities in Congress, right? That's an asset to getting the people he wants confirmed. It's an asset to blocking investigations that he doesn't like. Um, It's like a huge bulwark 
of his administration is that he's backed by these congressional majorities. But what Republicans in Congress worry about Trump is not so much that Trump will say or do unpopular things, but that Trump's uh, thirst for public approval will lead him off the path of their legislative agenda, right? I mean, you keep seeing this like ping pong of tensions around the Affordable Care Act, around Medicaid, around Medicare, where a Trump who seems like he just wants to go all in on, you know, having 70% numbers would be very alarming from the standpoint of, you know, Paul Ryan, who's spent the transition talking about how Republicans have this once in a generation opportunity to like transform uh, the American state, right? Which will just necessarily be like controversial and unpopular. Like it will be unpopular with me personally because I disagree with it. But like when Democrats did this in 2009, 2010, it's just it's unpopular. You have to decide as an empowered legislative majority, like, are we here to make friends or are we here to, like, pass giant bills, right? And, like, Paul Ryan is not here to make friends. And the fact Trump that— Trump would understand that metaphor and, if you wanted yeah. to take it to And him. the fact <laughs> that Donald Trump also isn't, I think, provides a certain level of reassurance, right? That, like, to an extent, they're, like, all in the bunker together, right? And, like, going to war with John Lewis or whatever is actually way better than the Donald Trump who is reaching across the aisle and is possibly going to pull a like Arnold Schwarzenegger type move and just like kick the ladder of the Republican Party aside now that he no longer needs it. But I think these are I think there's a lot to that. But I, I would just say these, I think, are very different bunkers. And this is where things are going to get very complicated yes. in the next couple of years. <laughs> One thing that I think is you can be somebody who cares about being popular and you can be somebody who doesn't care about being unpopular. I want to be clear that what I'm saying Trump is is a third thing, which is somebody who probably does care about being popular but doesn't believe in any of the information around it. And so Paul Ryan is willing to take a hit to accomplish certain ideological objectives. Donald Trump, by contrast, I think may not be willing to take that hit to accomplish those objectives. He just – is only willing to follow his gut on what is going to work and what is not going to work. And so to Sarah's point earlier, I mean, he does come out and say things like, we're, everybody's going to have health insurance. It doesn't matter if you can't pay for it and deductibles are going to be lower, which if he were getting advised by Paul Ryan, it'd be like, don't say stuff like that because there's no way you're going to be able to fulfill all of those conditions. But by the same token, like to, to your point a little bit, Matt, he's not just out there trying to um, – like poll test his way to popularity or he wouldn't be doing the John Lewis stuff. He's just in a very fundamental way in a way I don't think I've ever quite seen with a politician before truly going to follow his gut. His gut has gotten him this far. It never should have – like it, it was an unlikely amazing story. His gut has been proven right. He often will say when you ask him questions about who your advisors are that I'm really smart and I have great judgment and so I don't need a classified intelligence briefing uh, every morning because they're repetitive and boring. And I don't know if I were Paul Ryan, I wouldn't. It's possible it all work out for him, but I, I don't think. I think Trump is willing to absorb certain kinds of hits when he believes in it, but I don't think that the kinds of hits he wants to absorb are the ones that Paul Ryan wants to absorb. But we'll y see. Yes, I agree yeah. that Paul Ryan is making a mistake here, <laughs> but I'm saying that there's a shrewdness to Donald Trump. I think in staying combative, I think it keeps Republicans on his side. Sorry, explain that one more time. I'm not sure I understand. 
I think that Trump, by being contentious and combative and like picking these fights, whether it's with John Lewis or the cast of Hamilton or something like that, builds the solidarity on Capitol Hill that he has not objectively earned. Why do you think that? See, I would think that does not create more. Those fights, I I think, don't create more solidarity. But you think they do because these are not popular Republican enemies per se. No, but they're good. It's like good in conservative media. You know, Mm -hmm. there was like some like, for example, John Lewis, it was caught out by I think it was Fox or somebody that like actually he'd also boycotted George W. Bush's inauguration, you know, and like it. There's like an alternate world in which there's this narrative in which like the liberal bubble, the media is saying about like, for example, like Donald Trump, for example, clearly loves CNN, right? Like he watches CNN all the time. He gives CNN tons and tons of like favorable content. CNN gives him relentless softball coverage. They did this like quote unquote documentary on his daughter. They fired their conservative pundits to like hire fake Trump bots. But like Donald Trump maintains the pretense that like those were real Trump bots. That that <laughs> Donald Trump maintains the pretense that he really hates CNN. You know, because that's like part of his it's part of his shtick. It's not like popular with the median American, but it's like popular with the conservative grassroots. It's part of him getting control over the movement and getting people to not engage in the kind of critical thinking that, like, you are urging them to do. And, like, is this good? Like, should we just let Donald Trump get away with whatever he wants? And, like, really, like, they probably shouldn't, right? But, like, Trump Trump making nice, I think, would make it easier for people in the Republican Party to be like, wait a minute. Like, what's going on here? Like, how is this going to end for us? Speaking of how things will end for us, uh, yeah, we'll we end like with a white paper. I think we want to end on a white paper. They're getting a little clickbaity at National Bureau of Economic Research, <laughs> and they and they published a paper: elections, ideology, and turnover in the U.S. federal government. Uh, perfectly timed for this presidential transition. Wait, sorry, that's their clickbait headline. Well, it's not the headline; it's the the topic choice. It's, oh, <laughs> it's very it's very news. They're they're getting on the news. What's the headline? <laughs> Elections, ideology, oh. and turnover. So that was a headline. Yeah, yeah, no, terrible headline. That's Is that I, I, clickbait. I think that's an okay. I, I, I have seen way worse headline NBR papers. I, I think they're getting better. Anyway, I, I think that's clickbait by their standards. The upshot of this paper, the question they ask is, what happens when a new president comes in? And what happens is, is that a lot of senior civil servants quit. They particularly quit if the mission of their agency is poorly aligned with the ideological imperatives of the new administration. Mid-level people, though, actually hang on a little bit extra tenaciously uh, because there are lots of promotional opportunities driven by the um, huge quantity of senior quits. Um, So – we're talking about civil servants here, right? Yes. Yeah, so these are servants. people who are not appointed, have been working there for some amount of time, right. total political job. And exactly. the mid level appointees stay because all of a sudden there's a lot of career advancement on offer. Yes, exactly. So so some people basically the implication of this see the new president coming in and they're like, Oh my God, this guy's gonna just totally gut the EPA. I'm here to protect the environment, not to, like, you know, help people pollute. I'm going to quit and go either just, like, make money in the private sector if I'm not going to be able to help people or, like, work in advocacy and and try to do things that matter to me. But then there's people a rung or two below them who are like, oh, boy, all the bosses are going to quit. So, you know, I can get a big promotion here. So they become, like, less likely to to leave. Um, 
this is interesting to me because I'd seen there were a lot of discussions of this with Trump, right? Trump is an all new presidents face the sort of basic push and pull where like most of the domestic agencies are staffed by people who don't like Republicans and most of the hard security agencies are staffed by people who don't like Democrats. Trump is unusually unpopular for a Republican among people with college degrees and has picked up support more from working class people. Um, You will find that most high level senior uh, civil servants have college degrees um, across all different kinds of agencies is probably unusually unpopular. He's also vocally disrespectful of sort of government work in the way that, you know, George W. Bush was on the one hand skeptical of the federal government. On the other hand, like had been governor of a large state and obviously had like spent some time talking to public employees. Um, So it seems like we will see a lot of this. And I had often heard the concern voice that like, well, a lot of people are going to quit and it'll be like a purge and Donald Trump can now like restock uh, the agencies. But at least if the pattern of this paper holds up like that's not what will happen that the bureaucrats are a little smarter than that and the people who are in line for promotions will actually like hang on and fill those top ranks which i guess might be good i don't fully understand so so the idea is because this cycle has to keep going yeah so the idea is when you're mid-level and there's a transition you move up but then there's another transition and then you're just like i'm out because i'm like more senior and i can get I bet, like it suggests you get more ideological as you get more senior or like you have better job opportunities I guess I'm a little confused about like how well, no. this paper like envisions the cycle of people so, coming so they, in. And so out. they just they instrument like the normal level of turnover, right? So in mm-hmm. any given year, a certain number of people quit right. federal civil service jobs, right? And they find that in presidential transition years, right, high level people are unusually likely to quit, but mid level people are unusually unlikely mm-hmm. to quit. Got it. But it suggests that these mid level people are transitioning to upper level. Right? Like, that's the implication there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then isn't it also suggesting that, like, at some point, like, something's changing? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into the data. Well, no, we just keep getting more low-level people in who become escalator. But then they get to the top, and then there's transition, and then they're much more likely to leave. Well, but it's when you're at a high-level career civil service job— like transition doesn't create promotional opportunities. Right. Also, I right? would assume if you're if you're that high level, you've had more control over what you're doing. You're more directly invested than right. like if you go into a, a, a civil service job. I mean, I, I had friends who were certainly not pro Trump who had been applying or already in the the federal government, and like I think you have to you accept to some degree that when you're like mid level on the totem pole, that like this just happens and it's what you signed up for. But I, I can imagine that if you're at the point of like directing an initiative that's not going to exist anymore, it's 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 less it's less attractive to just keep writing it out. I also is- think there's a it, it's been from what I am seeing anecdotally, I think more low level people are. To Matt's point about which groups Trump does well with, he does very badly with young people. <laughs> and a lot of young people who are very intent on um, – who have young people politics find Trump particularly objectionable. And I, I just have seen a lot of people or heard of a lot of people just leaving uh, government jobs. I'd be curious, though, what is the magnitude of the effect in this paper? Because if we're talking about – I mean the, this is a very different story if it's like everybody <laughs> versus – the propensities are five percent different in the two cases. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fairly modest uh, magnitude. I, I think that they they find here. I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Um, 
exact number. So this is like an on the margin effect. Yeah, I mean, it's not like everybody goes right, right? because because we. We have fairly low down political appointees. I mean, one thing that I think is is worth noting is that there are so many political appointees in the U.S. federal government that there's a certain amount of permeability between mm-hmm. the senior civil service jobs and the lowest level political appointments. And I know um, at least one person who sort of had had a civil service job and then a political job above him like opened up. Mm-hmm. In 2016, and it's like people know that like you don't want to take a political appointment right at the end of an administration, but also that's an opportunity for other people to to jump into. Um, in this case, I think uh, you know he was betting that Hillary Clinton would probably win, as most of us did, but it turned out like the polls were rigged, and you know now now that that bet sort of doesn't pay off. Um, but that is part of it, right? Is that people at the top levels are much more involved with the political people. There's probably also, I would just think, an effect here, uh, it goes a little bit to what Libby was saying earlier, people at the top levels also just have more agency and opportunities. Mm -hmm. So if you're very high up in the EPA, say, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of places for better and for worse that might want that experience, whereas if you're mid-level... Whatever I just said made Sarah so angry, she like punted the table. I'm not used to sitting in this chair. I'm really close to the – never mind. Uh, And and so I do wonder if some of this effect is also just presidential transitions are a break point when people think about their career prospects. And if you're mid-level, I mean you you may well have some good options, but there may not be quite as many of them as if you're senior management – And so some of the effect we're just seeing is that. Something that I'm going to be curious about is that the Obama administration actually created a couple of agencies, right? So Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a big one. Uh, The Financial Stability Oversight Council um, is another, a smaller but important one. I don't know. I assume some new mechanism was created as part of uh, Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Well, you also have like Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. Is like U.S. A U- Digital a- Service. U.S. Digital right, Service US Digital is another right. one. So something that's interesting that happens, like normal civil service hiring is like some jobs open up, some people come in, you're in the career thing. When you start a new agency, it's a little bit of a like a like a holiday from the normal rules where you have people being hired for what are career jobs, but it's a sort of a de facto political hiring type situation because like the first director of the agency like is the only person who's Mm -hmm. ever been in a position to, to make these kind of decisions. So, you know, what will the fate of those people be? Because, you know, the EPA has a institutional legacy, right? I mean, when George W. Bush was president, he was not like super enthusiastic about environmental enforcement, uh, but they did their things. I mean, the people who are there have some sense of like, what do you do when a Republican is in office? How do we do our jobs professionally? How do we try to nudge policy the way we want? The people who Elizabeth Warren originally recruited to stand up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are in a different kind of position. That is not an agency with like a lot of lore or a lot of um, uh, like history and tradition or necessarily even like ethos of nonpartisanship. It's like been in the crossfire from its its sort of beginning days. 
And I wonder if you'll see like a complete decimation there in a way that would be unusual for a sort of more established agency. I would think it would depend sort of on how much confidence they have that they will be able to do their work. Um, a couple of years ago, four or five, I did an exit interview with a lifetime career official who moved into a political appointment actually at the end of his career at the education department. And this is irrelevant because he had been there since he was part of the cohort that was hired when the education department was created at cabinet level and was a really interesting guy. I knew a ton about sort of the history of regulation. But one of the things we talked about was when Reagan came in uh, just three or four years later and like promised immediately to defund and destroy the education department. And the sense I got from him was he obviously had survived. And so maybe there is a survivor's bias toward people who want to put their head down and do their work. Um, but as long as there was a sense that like there was work to be done and they could put their head down and do it, the people who'd come in to do that work at least some of them stuck with it. I think the question is, like, does the CFPB get to do anything? Because I can't imagine wanting to stay if you were committed to this agency's mission and it's, like, blocked from doing anything interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's so much going on. Like, I hear, again, a lot of this is anecdotal, but a lot of people staying and saying, like, I don't think, like, and I think CFPB might be an exception here. Like, that might be something that's really on the chopping block. But, like, looking at, like, we're about to have this big Obamacare fight. Like, that's going to really dominate things. Like, I've talked to, like, friends who work at Ed who are like, I just don't think, like, they're going to be able to change much about my mm-hmm. job in the next four years. Like, we're just not high enough on the priority list. And feeling almost, like, going back to, like, our early theme, like, the, like, boring, drudging task of bureaucracy is actually quite protective. Like, you know, the Trump administration is going to come in on Friday and they're going to have to run the last Obamacare open enrollment period for the – or not the last, sorry, the um, this current Obama – possibly the last <laughs> Obamacare enrollment period um, for the next 10 days. And the people who I know there have generally said, like, I don't – like, I think this is a thing that needs to happen and, like, I'm going to stay here and, like, make sure it gets run competently. But I, I'm also curious in this – maybe this paper, they don't get into it, like – how how long they measure the time and, like, what are the, like, the times that, like, bureaucrats give to, like, kind of test out a new administration versus say, like, oh, this looks like a disaster and, like, I'm headed to the private yeah, They sector. were looking at, like, the one year, you know, okay. which at least they interpret as, like, a short-term response rather mm-hmm. than, like, a wait-and-see response. But I think one could make the case that, that, that that's not right. So, I mean, for example, I do know people who work in financial regulation in the, uh, like, you know, sort of macro prudential regulation, it's called, like try to not have another financial crisis. And those people I was talking to are torn because on the one hand, like they think Trump's team will come in sort of ideologically committed to wrecking their work and much more open to business lobbying and influence. On the other hand, they think that Donald Trump would not want to preside over a financial crisis. And so they'd like sort of think that if they come up with like really good memos, like they will persuade the relevant people that like actually what they're doing is important. Um, Ideological tensions exist in a lot of different agencies, but the nature of the tension may be very different uh, across these different things. And so those people, as Sarah was saying, I mean, I think they are going to give it a shot, right? And what the actual reaction is, I mean, Trump has not even begun to consider appointing the Treasury subcabinet people who would be the relevant actors here. But I think the question will be, do they feel like they are getting a respectful hearing? Are they being told, you know, we disagree, but they sound like they have good reasons? Or is their work being completely, completely ignored? Because if you feel like you're not moving the needle at all, 
you know, then you want to quit. But if you feel like, okay, you know, the bosses are more skeptical than the previous set of bosses, but they're still open to persuasion, then you say, all right, you know, this is important. At least I think it's important. And and then you work away at it. All right. All right. I'm going to stay at Fox. I'm not going to the new administration. Uh, no? Oh, we'll see, right? Anyway, you know, you know what's how much stock trading I can do. (laughs) You know what's important is telling your friends that you enjoy the weeds, sharing it on Facebook and Twitter, rating it, and subscribing on iTunes. Uh, It's also important that we thank our. You've got to rate it because those rankings are totally rigged, and unless you make your voices heard, they actually are. And subscribe, I know. (laughs) Subscriptions are what get you there. Oh yeah, it's a. It's it's all been an opaque algorithm. It's all been rigged for Pod Save America, and (laughs) and we need you. Oh, somehow it was a top ten UK podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's also important that we thank our producer, Afim Shapiro, and Libby Nelson for jumping in today. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply podcast. It'll be back to you coming live from Trump's America next week. I guess not live. I thought, I thought we were doing Friday. Oh, yeah. It'll still be Trump's America. It'll still be Trump's America, but it'll be in two days. Uh, and not live. And not live. Wait. All right, fine. <laughs> we can just leave all that in. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> all right. <laughs>